0: Amen. Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 tonight, verses 1 through 3. Now, last year at this time, we began a study of the book of Ephesians. That carried us through until May, and we picked up a study of the Old Testament prophet Malachi. And tonight, uh, between tonight and Christmas time, when we'll celebrate uh, the coming of our Savior, We'll consider this Old Testament book, just Genesis 1-6, to from the creation to the flood, as God sets the stage for the coming of the Redeemer. So we'll anticipate our celebration of His coming at Christmas. But before we read the letter, let me answer a question. Why study Genesis? And let me say four or five things about that before we study this book together. Why study Genesis? Number one, because it lays the groundwork for the rest of the Bible. Genesis means origin or beginning. In the reboot of both the Superman and Spider-Man franchises, in which each of those movies came out both last summer and this summer, a new edition of the series uh, in which the producers and directors and actors, I think, hope to make cinematic Millions over the course of three or four or whoever knows how many uh, more movies to come, each of those reboots began again with the story that's been told any number of times. The The introductory story, the origin story, how did Superman and how did Spider-Man come to be who they are and where they are with the powers that they possess and the uh, the flaws or vulnerabilities that they have? Uh, why do they have the enemies that they have? And, and so uh, these things, friends, were considered vital to the stories that they hoped to tell in the future. So the beginning had to be revisited. Some characters and details in the future wouldn't be comprehensible. Uh, some of the problems or the resolutions to those problems uh, would be unsatisfying some of the drama between the hero and their girlfriend or prospective would be lost without the backstory being told. Every story has a beginning and we must at some time become thoroughly familiar with it. It shapes everything that follows. So likewise in the Bible. The themes in Genesis are foundational for the rest of the Bible. It's, it's like a musical overture, Genesis is, that introduces and ties together the pieces of music you'll hear again and again. It's, another way to put it is it's, it's this. Uh, in this section, it's, it's to view from the perspective of an artist who, before he paints has to stretch and prepare a canvas upon which his art will be displayed. So in a similar fashion, in these opening words, we we see a description of God doing just that, preparing the canvas upon which he will paint a picture called redemption and in which he will show and demonstrate his glory and his power and his grace and his love. That's why one reason why we need to read it. That this is the, the foundation of the whole Bible. But it's also vitally important to our understanding of the New Testament. Derek Kidner, the commentator, says this. Genesis, in fact, is in various ways almost nearer the New Testament than the Old. And some of its topics are barely heard again until their implications can fully emerge in the gospel. So, for instance, the institution of marriage, uh, the fall of man, the jealousy of Cain, the judgment of the flood, the imputed righteousness of the believer, the rival sons of promise and of the flesh, the profanity of Esau, the pilgrim status of God's people are all predominantly New Testament themes. But they're introduced to us here in the Old Testament. And Genesis, as you may know, comes back around again at the very end of the book. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 correspond in so many ways to to the last two and three chapters of the book of Revelation. Things like the new heavens and the new earth, the garden and the river, the tree of life and the serpent are all there at the end of the book. So we need to ponder them at the beginning. We should, therefore, never underestimate the importance of the Old Testament for properly understanding the New Testament. Because this is where God starts his story. It's no wonder, then, that Genesis is quoted more often in the New Testament than almost any other book of the Bible. Besides the Psalms and and Isaiah, some have called him the fifth gospel of the Bible. Quoted regularly because the Old Testament is the bud and the New Testament is the flower. And there's a third reason we need to study this. We need to study this because this is the Bible of Jesus. We'll understand him more if we understand the book that he believed. And by the way, one of the chief reasons Christians read and believe the Old Testament is because Jesus read and believe the old testament and simply as an act of devotion to him we bow and say we read and believe it too that's not the only reason of course but it's an act of devotion and so we need to to read this and under, to understand jesus and finally friends because this is this book as you know is a point of massive controversy and confusion in our culture today even in the church does god exist does it matter if he does did he make the world? Did science disprove that? What about evolution? What does it mean to be human? Why am I here? What am I made for? What's the point of living? Why, if there is a God, does life have so much trouble and heartache? We'll get to all of that in Genesis 1 to 6, and we'll see Jesus too. Lord willing. And so these are all reasons why we need to study Genesis. And I want to take you through a tour of Genesis chapters 1 through 6. But tonight, just the opening few verses, Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me invite you to hear and contemplate God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting truth. May He write it on our hearts. Let's look to Him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would Teach us your word tonight. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the the knowledge of Jesus. Enlighten our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to ask the question, can we believe in a creator? And if so, what is the creator like? And how should that shape us? Just those few questions this evening. Can I believe in a creator? Can you believe in a creator? And Does he exist? Notice what the Bible says he created. In the beginning, God created, verse 1, what? The heavens and the earth. It's a Hebrew way of saying everything. They had no word for Universe. It's a figure of speech, like from head to toe or from A to Z, and everything in between. So God made the heavens and the earth and everything else. This is what it's saying, friends, that, that from God and through God and for God are all things. Now, how did he do it? He created everything out of nothing, the Bible says. Ex nihilo, in verse 3, we see that he spoke the world into existence by the word of his power he just declared it and it was before that word there was nothing except God by nothing we don't mean the universe existed but was some massive empty real estate we mean there was no universe there was no matter there was nothing at all except God Do you find that hard to understand? Well, it's beyond our ability to fully imagine. Imagine nothing. And my guess is you have some big, empty, dark space in mind, even as you do so. So we're invited to believe what our minds can't fully conceive. We we live in a world that's already been made. Welcome, friends, to faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In, in faith, friends, we trust God's word is true. But the question ought to be asked, isn't it kind of unreasonable to ask that, to ask us to believe that? The very idea of God existing and God creating is so commonly rejected as ancient and ignorant mythology. Who can believe this in our day? We might ask. Well, before you reject it, consider the options that you have. The impression says Donald McLeod, a theologian in Scotland, says the impression has got abroad for uh, not only that the Christian doct- doctrine of creation has been disproved, but that scholars have agreed on an alternative. Neither of these assumptions is correct. There is no agreed alternative to the Christian position. Those which are affirmed are beset with enormous difficulties. He goes on to point out, basically, you have only three options, friends. Either either there has always been someone, or there was at one time nothing, nothing at all, and then something. Or... There has always been something. Those are the only three options you have. Consider those for a second. Before creation, one view says someone existed. That's the view of the Bible. God alone existed. And his existence is the reason for the existence of everything else. That's the Bible's view. But the second view is this. That before creation, nothing existed. Absolutely nothing. No, No God Uh, No matter, no mass, no time, no energy, no potential, no protoplasm, nothing at all. And then the universe began. And the question, of course, is how and why? It's absurd to say it created itself. It would have to exist. In order to bring itself into being, it would have to exist prior to its own coming into being. And nobody really believes that, friends. Out of nothing, nothing comes. The third view is, before the creation of the universe, an impersonal something always existed. Not a someone, but a something, some protoplasm or whatever you want to call it. Name it the blob. Some tiny primary particle, uh, some thing that's always been, and that thing, blob, we might call it, had all of the potential of the world that we see in it. The world that we now see is somehow the product of that eternal, always existing, impersonal something. And then perhaps at some point it exploded. And flung muck everywhere, which condensed into galaxies of stars and oceans of fish. Now this is where it gets fascinating, friends, because what is believed in when you embrace that view is that this something had the characteristics of deity, but without personality. Now, think of it. Always existing, eternal, self-existing. Nothing outside of it brought it into being. It exists or sustains itself in the power of its own being. It exists by the cause of its own power. And it's omnipotent. Or at least, in the very least, it has massive potential energy. That is, all the energy we now see unleashed in the universe, bound up in stars across the universe... And all the energy that lies yet within them in its potential, all of that energy came from this first thing we call blob. It had all that potential anyway, but it didn't have personality. It was a something and not a someone. It had no ability to think, no ability to plan, no ability to, to purpose anything, desire anything, to reason, to relate to love, or to care. It had none of that. But now look, those three attributes, eternality, self-existence, and omnipotence are three essential qualities of the Christian God that people who hold this other view often say is so unintellectual and unreasonable to believe. But isn't it harder to believe that something came from nothing or that something always existed, self-existed, and had awesome power, but no wisdom at all. Isn't it harder to believe that the intelligence and creativity and beauty of the world we now see was created by some irrational cause and effect than by an intelligent, creative, and beautiful creator? As many have put it in various ways, put a bunch of snails in a room for a million years and they will never produce for you psalm 23 the sermon on the mount or the lord of the rings in book or in film it takes wisdom and desire and creativity and rationality it takes personality to do that friends This is why Matthew Henry says the the first verse of the Bible gives us a surer and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest wits. Christians aren't irrational for believing that the universe did not create itself or that it's just always existed but without any intelligence and reason. Christians are not irrational for believing that the universe is the deliberate work of an all-powerful, always-existing, (laughs) self-existing, creative artist who's wise. In fact, the Bible says we should all draw that conclusion from creation that this God exists and God expects us to draw that conclusion. We read earlier tonight, Romans chapter one, listen again to verses 19 through 20 of that where the Apostle Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. It is plain, the Bible says. His existence and his power are clearly perceived in creation and we are without excuse, the Bible says. Ah, but you say, even still... It doesn't necessarily mean that the intelligent being you're talking about who created the universe is the God of the Bible. He could be different, you say. Well, if I agree with you, then I ask you, then what is he like? And how do you know what he is like? Unless he tells you. The Bible claims to be the book from him telling you what he is like. Which leads us then, friends, to our next question from this text. What is God like? What does this text tell us he is like? And what difference does that make? And let me, let me highlight three things this passage says about him. Number one, this passage says that God is distinct from the world, but he cares about it. That's what this passage tells us, friends. He's the creator of it, and he's, uh, it's his creation he isn't the world, and the world isn't him. He's bigger than the world. He's, he's above the world. He's different than the world, and he brought the world into being. But he isn't, in saying all that, he isn't aloof from the world. He isn't some disinterested God watching us from a different, a, a distance. He, he isn't a God who doesn't love or care about the world that he made. He isn't the God of the deist, the, the clockmaker, who, who uh, as a first cause of all things simply wound up a world, set it aside, and folds his arms watching the world wind down. That's, that's the God of one famous deist, Thomas Jefferson, perhaps you know that he made a version of the bible in which he cut out all the parts of the bible that had god actually interacting with his world he cut out the miracles he cut out the idea of god answering prayer acting in this world but the god of the bible is the god who spoke the world into existence and who cares so deeply about it that he remains intimately involved in it you see this friends look back at genesis chapter one look at verse Uh, verse 2 at the end of it the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters that word hovering is only used one other place in the Bible Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 11 and and it speaks of an eagle hovering over its young to protect them and to nurture them that's the language used here of the spirit of God hovering over the world that God had made to nurture it and to protect it, and as we'll see, to shape it as God wanted and to fill it as God wanted. But God cares about the world he made, yet he's different than that world. He cares about that world how much, friends? He cares about that world so much that he himself became man and entered our experience in this world, the deity the Bible says later, added to himself humanity and walked among us in this world. Our lack of interest in him who is so interested in us is therefore breathtaking. That's the first thing you see, friends. You see that God is distinct from his creation, but he cares for it. The second thing you see is that he is abundantly generous. and you see that, friends, if you simply ask the question, why did he make us? Well, not because he was alone and lonely and needed us to satisfy his emptiness. He's never been alone and lonely. He's always existed in loving community. Now, you catch a hint of that, friends, here, Even in Genesis 1, and it's spelled out so much more clearly in the rest of the Bible. But you catch a a hint of it here, even in the word used for God in the opening verse. In the beginning, Elohim, the Mighty One, literally translated. Except it's a masculine plural noun. Which ordinarily, you and I would think, we ought to translate the Mighty Ones. And yet in the Bible, Elohim, spoken of the God of the Bible, is never used in the plural. He's always identified as one. I mean, if you're not clear on that point, just ask yourself the question, are the ancient Jews known for being monotheistic, one God worshipers, or polytheistic, many God worshipers? Of course, monotheistic because the Bible everywhere says that there is only one eternal and everlasting deity. So what's going on? You see a hint of plurality. Some have said this is the plurality of majesty. Others have said this is a hint, friends, of the plurality that exists inside the one God. The rest of the Bible is perhaps you know unpacks that. That there is in this one God a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. Let let me emphasize that plurality here for a moment. When we get to Genesis 1 verse 26, it will be on display again on the day that God makes humanity. God says, let us make man in our image he's not talking to the angels you are not made in the image of angels or other created things you're made in the image of god let us make man in our image it's a hint of the trinity which the new testament makes explicit john chapter 1 verse 1 says this in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god And then at verse 14, and the word became flesh. The Apostle John, friends, is saying there's Jesus, the word, and there's God. And then at the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. Plurality. You see it again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when the Apostle Paul says of Jesus this, For by him all things were created, In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In the beginning, Jesus Jesus was already there. The son of God was present. And we saw explicitly in verses 1, 2, and 3 that God is there. God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, We've already described the presence of Jesus, the word of God, the one by whom God speaks the universe into existence. And we saw, again, at the end of verse 2, the spirit of God is there hovering over creation itself. So in short, God is one being, one divine deity, but eternally existing in a plurality of persons In a community within himself. A loving, eternal fellowship in the enjoyment of one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A perfect community. So why did he create us? Not because he needed us. Not because he was lonely and alone. Not because we fill some void in his life. He's happy, eternally happy in himself satisfying love and relationship has always been present with him. So why did he create us? Generosity. Goodness. He, with unbelievable generosity and goodness, he determined to make a world, a beautiful world, teeming with life and crown it with people who would be made in his image and giving them the privilege of bearing his image and ruling over this world for his glory. He's abundantly generous, friends. And our lack of thankfulness to him in light of that is breathtaking. But there's a third and last thing we learn about God in this passage, friends, and that is this, that God is the central focus of creation. God is the creator of it. He's distinct from it, but he cares about it. That's the first thing. He's abundantly generous. That's the second thing. And the third thing is he is the central focus of creation. He's the subject of the verse, not creation, friends. God is the subject and creation is the object. It's it's not insignificant that God, Elohim, is used 35 times in the first 35 verses. Because he's the one you're supposed to be thinking about. Not primarily the world that he made. Except as it takes you back to him as its creator. He is of... First importance, and that means that the universe is God-centered, not man-centered. In uh, Augustine, the famous early church father, in Augustine's book, The Confessions, in which he, uh, well, confesses in part anyway, what he believes, admits some things about himself. It's kind of the first autobiography of, in history, uh, literature analysts will say. Augustine begins like this, to paraphrase, vast and great are you, God. And I am a blip. I am a dot. Uh, I was hearing somebody speak about this on, on YouTube. A sociologist a few decades ago called us the belly button generation. We're so fixated on ourselves, captivated by ourselves. We're like infants when they discover their own belly button. They just, they're fascinated by it. uh, And that's okay when you're an infant, (laughs) but it's not okay the older you get. And if that's all you remain fixed on, the older you get, you will live an incredibly shallow life. And of course, that's the indictment he was making against our generation. There is in the Bible a much bigger story going on here, friends, than just creation. There is a much bigger story going on here than just you being part of God's creation. That story is God. And he is weightier than your ambitions and your portfolio and your resume. And he should be the central focus of you. He made you for himself. Now listen, we have all failed on centering on him. You know the expression, dance with the one who brought you? Uh, Young men, if you don't know what that means, young ladies, if you don't know what that means, if you get invited to a dance, dance with the person who brought you there. Don't turn your back on them the minute they paid the entrance fees to show you a good time and then go dance with somebody else. Well, we were made to dance with the one who brought us into being. But we haven't. We've, as Paul says in Romans 1, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we've served the creature rather than the creator. And our creation centeredness instead of creator centeredness is breathtaking in its audacity and arrogance, and foolishness. Friends, in this passage, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the Bible denies atheism, for one God made the universe. It denies polytheism, many gods, because it is one God who made the heavens and the earth. It denies pantheism, the idea that God is in everything, and therefore everything is God. It denies that because the one God is distinct from his creation and yet he brought it into being and it denies friends humanism because God not man is on the throne of the universe and this affirms friends if it denies those things it affirms the song of heaven it even undergirds and supports and lays a foundation for the song of the saints and the angels and the elders who bow before the throne in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 and sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That's what this does. Now let me ask you a question as we close. If you were the God who exists but nobody seeks and you were the God who cares but nobody trusts and if you were the God who gives but nobody thanks what would you do I suspect that you my friends like me would turn your back Don't we do that to people already? People we know who to our face show us no interest, who never say thanks to us when we do things for them or give things to them and who talk about themselves incessantly and never ask us a single question. Don't we already in our heart of hearts, at the very least turn our back on them. And do you know why we do that? Because we are proud And unmerciful. That's why we do that. We think we deserve better. And we think they ought to get nothing from us because they don't deserve anything. But God, the God of this Bible, isn't like you or me. He isn't like that at all. What did this God do? The biggest being in the universe is so incredibly humble, the Bible says. So extraordinarily loving, so extravagant in his generosity that for the sake of our well-being when we had gone astray and provoked him to his face, he became like one of us and he suffered on a tree by us, for us, in order the just for the unjust to bring us back to god that's what he did because he's gracious too let's pray father in heaven we bless you and we thank you you are worthy of all things and we ought to thank you and be grateful to you and seek you and care for you care about you and we have fallen far short of what you made us for and forgive us we pray Heal us, change us, be gracious to us for Jesus' sake, for we ask it in his name. Amen.